0: In order to understand what's happening in this story, you're going to look at David keep a promise at great personal cost to himself, uh, and it's a beautiful thing to see the way that David treats this man and the, wi- the willingness that he has to keep his promise. But more than just keeping a promise, he's keeping a covenant that he made with Jonathan. Jonathan. Uh, About a month ago, Pastor Kevin walked us through David and Jonathan's friendship and looked at the covenant several times. David and Jonathan covenanted together. What does that word mean, uh, to to make a covenant? Before we can kind of jump into the story, we need to talk a little bit about covenants because they are from beginning to end all through Scripture, and we as people need to understand what this biblical concept of covenant is. It's more than just a promise. Uh, It's more than little children on the playground pinky swearing, all right? It's, It's more than the strongest promise you can make. We think of promises just in our culture as our word and keeping our word, and we look for easy ways out of our promises when it's not convenient to us. And yet the idea of covenant goes, goes much, much deeper, much, much stronger. So before we can look at the biblical concept of covenant, let me talk about ancient Near East culture. So in Bible times, the idea of covenanting was common. And you would see kings covenant with one another. So for example, let's look at that idea. When kings would covenant in ancient history, you would have two kings, or perhaps you would see it this way, that there would be a greater king, a more powerful king with a more powerful king. Kingdom, and he was known as the suzerian king and he would covenant with a lesser king with what would be known as a vassal king and he would see this kingdom in danger the greater king would look and see here's a people who need help and he, as the Caesarian king, would come and covenant with the people. There would be somewhat of an exchange of services that, where, whereby the, the, the kingdom who was in danger, the ones who couldn't protect and defend themselves, they would be then in the indentured servitude of the greater king. And he would exchange for that, for their servitude and for the things that they offered to him, he would provide his protection. He would provide his armies, they would become his People And he would covenant with them in that way. And there was a whole formal covenanting ceremony, several parts to it that you would see repeated in these covenants that were made in Bible times. So you see a similar concept take place then in scripture whereby God makes covenants. And you see uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham, the covenant that God made with Noah, with David. There would be many, 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 all the way to the covenant that God has made with us where Jesus, last week, we celebrated the Lord's table and Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Where Jesus, all of his own, there was nothing we offered him. And you see Jesus provide salvation. When you start looking at the biblical covenants, sometimes they are two sided. Other times they're completely unconditional, where God of his own free will and nature covenants with us and he simply says this is what I'm going to do for you and there's no conditions to the covenant other times God has expectations and then you see people like David and Jonathan in our story where they make a covenant together with one another it's stronger than a promise they're agreeing to certain commitments for you and I today in our culture and context there's at least a couple places where covenants still come into focus and picture one would be the idea of a marriage ceremony where we as spouses stand before one another and we covenant there's a commitment made and then the other would be in the idea of the local church and the covenantal community that the church is we've been walking through the new members class on Sunday mornings, and we've been explaining and looking at the fact that that when we join a church, we, we commit to one another. We covenant together. And so as we think about covenants in that context, I want us to look at the way David and Mephibosheth treated one another, the way David treated Mephibosheth. He did it all because of a covenant that he made with Jonathan. This story, this picture, this idea of covenant, it will picture for us a couple of things. One, it will picture for us the way that God has covenanted with us or made his new covenant salvation possible through the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel will be pictured by the way David treats Mephibosheth. And the other picture will be the way that we ought to love and treat one another. You have the scripture in your bulletin, John chapter 13, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another one another we're gonna talk about what that means to love in that way and the story of David and Mephibosheth will help us it will help give us an example so look at second Samuel chapter 9 and we're gonna start in verse one. 1 second Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1 and here's how the story goes and David said is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake so we've skipped over second Samuel chapter 8 there's a lot of military conquests at this point David David, probably at least two decades have passed in between the time where David originally made his covenant with Jonathan and several, several years have gone by, perhaps up to 20 years. And David is thinking back and he says this. Now, is there anyone left that I may show them kindness for Jonathan's sake? I want you to go back in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 20. First Samuel chapter twenty is one of the scriptures that Kevin looked at when we walked through this passage. This is the story where where David has to flee. Uh, he makes this arrangement where Jonathan comes out to the field and they come up with the plans, shoot the arrows, and if they go one direction, this means you need to flee. If they go the other direction, it means it's safe. And and. Jonathan risks his life to bring David to safety, to give him the news that no, it's not safe. You have to get out and flee for your life. Look at verse 14 of 1 Samuel 20 at this point Jonathan is talking Jonathan is talking to David and he says if I am still alive show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth David, Jonathan at this point is asking show me steadfast love show me kindness covenant with me that you will love and care and protect even when all of your enemies are gone well by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9 this is precisely what has taken place there's a relative amount of peace in the kingdom now the the battles aren't done you're going to see some of them still coming in the story but David's now to the point where a lot of his enemies are gone and now he thinks back to this covenant that David made with Jonathan the roles have been reversed in 1 Samuel 20 when Jonathan and David made the covenant uh, Saul was the king Jonathan was the Prince Um, And yet, David had been anointed. He knew he was the Lord's chosen, but there was every reason to think from a worldly, earthly perspective that Jonathan would someday be the one in power and David would be the one who would need Jonathan's promise. And yet, Jonathan, looking forward, knows that that David is God's anointed king. He says, David, when God has cut off every one of your enemies, please still show kindness to me and my family. Show your steadfast love. That, That word that is used in 1 Samuel 20 steadfast love is the exact same word that's used in 2nd Samuel 9 verse 1 kindness it's the word hesed uh, the psalmist over and over speaks of God's Hesed love for us, God's steadfast love. It's a word which means, one commentator says, a responsible keeping of faith with another with whom one is in a relationship. Synonyms would be kindness, grace, loyalty, faithfulness, love, mercy, goodness. God shows his children, Hesed, Love, steadfast love. And on a human level, Jonathan and David made a covenant to, to live out that same Hesed love, that steadfast love, that kindness. Now, at this point in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1, David looks back, he says, Is there anybody left from the household of Saul? This it was very unnatural. You see, when a king would take a, 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 a come to the throne, there was every cultural reason to think that every one of the former king's line would be wiped out. You would not want threats. To your throne as a new king and it would have made sense to wipe out every single one of Saul's descendants especially when he gets to the point that there's no pressing threat from enemies and why not go ahead and make sure there's no last person hanging around from Saul's line and make sure they're wiped out too now that you've taken care of the greater dangers and yet David doesn't do that. He thinks back and says how can I show kindness Hesed, to the household of Saul Because of Jonathan's sake. Because of the covenant that we made to show kindness. And here's what happens then in verse 2. Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So back when Saul was king and he had an estate and he had a household, one of his chief servants' name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness, the hesed, the steadfast love of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is a crippled in his feet. So Ziba, the one who knew Jonathan's house, would have known Saul's house, excuse me. He knows that Jonathan had a son. He, this was a son who was crippled in his feet. If you went back to 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, I won't need you to turn there now, but if you went back to 2 Samuel 4, when Saul and Jonathan were killed and news came back that that that, that the king was dead Saul and Jonathan's family knew they needed to run they needed to flee they were next their life was on the line and Jonathan's son Mephibosheth had a maid or a nurse who picked him up and in the flurry in the rush to save themselves she trips and falls uh, or, or drops Mephibosheth and he becomes lame in both his feet can no longer walk and Ziba realizes that this man is precisely whom David is seeking someone left from the line of Saul a son of Jonathan and he says but he's lame in both his feet perhaps he's knowing that most ordinary kings would be looking for people to kill they'd be looking for threats to kill and Ziba says listen he's lame in both his feet perhaps he's alluding to the fact that but he's no, you don't need to worry about him it's just Mephibosheth uh, he's lame in both his feet and perhaps perhaps he's covering for him but right away the text lets us know that there's something in place and in verse 4, the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba says to the king, He's in the house of Makir, the son of lo Lodabar. Then the king sent and brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his faith and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. He answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. This is a remarkable scene. It it truly is. Mephibosheth comes... To this point in the story, he's been known as he. He's been known as a son of Jonathan. He's been known as someone who's crippled. And then when he sees David face to face, finally the narrator names him as Mephibosheth, and David speaks his name, Mephibosheth. Now, if you're Mephibosheth at that point, there can be no good reason you're being summoned to the king's palace. You are likely fearing for your life. And in fact, very quickly, David says, do not fear. I'm going to show you kindness for your father's sake. You will always eat at my table. I'm going to give you the estate of your grandfather, Saul. And you see this incredible display of kindness. What does David do for Mephibosheth? Well, he does several things. If you were to read the rest of the verses, we won't go through all of them. But he does two very significant things. First of all, he gives all of the land and all of the estate that belonged to Saul, he gives all of it now to Mephibosheth. Ziba had probably still been acting as a caretaker, and now Mephibosheth inherits all of the estate. Um, it was about three miles north of Jerusalem. There would have been a lot of land, a lot of property. And, and David says, Mephibosheth, this is now all of yours. Here's a man who's been hiding out in someone else's house, probably very literally scared for his life. Uh, no no good chance for survival. No good chance for making uh, a means for himself. And now he inherits all of his grandfather's estate. And not only that, David gives him all of Ziba and uh, all of Ziba's household and all of his servants. Ziba himself was not just the only servant. There were He had many children. He had many servants within the estate. And, and David gives all of them to Mephibosheth to now care for the land. And so he, he grants a, a huge amount of financial prosperity onto Mephibosheth. That would have been uh, allowable for it to be David's himself. Uh, as the new king coming in, he had the rights to conquer the estate of the old. But here at great cost to himself, he grants it to Mephibosheth. And then secondly, even greater probably than just that. He doesn't just say, I'm going to care for your financial prosperity. I'm going to take care of you in a physical way. He says, you will always eat at the king's table. He, he grants him room at the king's table, very similar to adopting him as a son. He says, you're going to eat with me. I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to bring you in to my family, into my palace. There will be a seat at my table. And you look at how the roles are reversed. You remember that early on in David's life, he had a seat at King Saul's table, part of what gave him that friendship with Jonathan. And now David is looking and he's saying, here's a descendant of Saul. I'm going to bring him to my table. And how does Mephibosheth respond in verse 8? And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? He, he, why are you showing this kindness to me, someone who's worthless? Again, in thinking about the roles that are reversed, if you went back to First Samuel 24, do you remember the account when David was in the cave and he had the opportunity to take Saul's life but instead just cuts a corner of the robe and he's convicted that he does even that? David waits for Saul to leave the cave. He comes out to the entrance of the cave and he calls out to Saul and he says, Saul, look, I'm not a bad guy. I wasn't trying to kill you. And he uses these words. Why, are you ch- why do you think, why are you chasing after me to hunt me down? I'm just a dead dog, David says. Why would you hunt for a dead dog? Why would you hunt for a flea? And here's the roles reversed now. Now David is the king. There's a descendant of Saul. And David's not trying to hunt him down for his life. He's saying, no, come sit at my table. Come come into the family. You have a relationship here. And I will always watch out for you. So this relationship then is described through the next several verses. And you get to verse 13. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And then again, the narrator reminds us, now he was lame in both his feet. This is so unusual that a king would do this. We've looked at the life of David and we've seen that there are high points and low points in his life. Times where he reflects his relationship with God well and times where he doesn't. Uh, And in in the next account, we're going to begin to see some of the ways that some of his failures really begin to come to the surface. But this would be one of the very good accounts in david's life where where things are going well in the kingdom he's at the rise so to speak of his reign as king and he shows kindness to this descendant of saul on account of his covenant with jonathan and it's truly a remarkable relationship it it there's pictures that we need to think about as we apply this story to our lives there's a couple of ways that it applies to us First of all, uh, it, it, it shows us our relationship with God. It, it pictures it for us. If you're taking notes, there's two things I'll have you write down this morning. Here's the first one. God does for us what David did for Mephibosheth. God does for us what David did for Mephibosheth. When you think about this, here's Mephibosheth. He's lame. He's crippled. He has no hope for a future. He, he's... He's an outcast in society. He's hiding in someone else's house. Uh, He probably had no real means of financial ability. And yet, what does David do? He extends this kindness, this steadfast love, this grace, and he just comes and says, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to just shower grace on you. What does God do for us in the gospel? You and I are lame we are crippled it's it's worse than that actually ephesians says not just that we're broken Ephesians says we are dead in our trespasses and sins the, the reality is is that each and every one of us have violated God's holy standards because God is righteous and good and holy none of us ha- can have a right relationship with God our sin condemns us to an eternity of judgment based on God's standards and yet what does God do he provides grace through the person of Jesus Christ Jesus Christ came to this earth fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life, and took our place, took a punishment that we deserved, so that his blood, which he shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven, covered, wiped away, cleansed, so that the steadfast love, the kindness of God could be shown to us through what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. Here's the thing, you guys, we contribute nothing to that. We, we, there's no benefit to God for this. This is not an exchange of goods in that sense where God says, I'll give you kindness, I'll give you the blood of my son if, and then there's conditions for us. No, the gospel is this unconditional covenant where God says, I'm granting to you the status of sonship that, that for any one of us who c- by faith repent of our sins and trust in jesus christ for salvation trusting that his work on the cross pays for our sin then we can find life and forgiveness and hope in jesus christ that's the gospel what god did for david excuse me what david did for mephibosheth god does for us that's that's how god works with the gospel And yet, there's another beautiful picture of what God does for us. Not just in a salvation sense of how God uh, takes us from sinner to Righteous, But in another sense, and at this point, whereas before I was reminding Christians and speaking to unbelievers, at this point I want to remind even believers, let me talk with you about one more aspect of what God does for us that's similar to what God did for David and Mephibosheth. First of all, you need to understand what the meaning of Mephibosheth's name is. The meaning of his name is one who scatters shame. You understand what shame is? I think all of us are familiar with shame. Uh, in, a, in the sense of guilt, guilt is related to shame, but let's think about this for a second. Guilt, there's a, a man named Ed Welch who has written a book called Shame Interrupted, and he said this, shame, excuse me, guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says this, something is wrong with me and others can see it. Catch the difference? Shame is, is uh, uh, that, that feeling that comes over us when we realize our sin or perhaps the sin of others uh, has now made us unacceptable, and we don't want others to see it. Now, there's a sense which that emotion can be a healthy, valuable emotion. In the sense when guilt and shame are true, they're valuable things that push us to God and say, something's not right, you need a savior, right? Right? There's a sense in which every parent of toddlers understands that shame can be helpful and beneficial when a child realizes they've done something wrong. You as a parent, usually, in the, at least for certain sensitive hearts, you, you don't have to go fishing. Have you done something wrong? Did you disobey me? You see it in their eyes. They don't want to look. They know something's wrong. My favorite is one of my kids who doesn't want to be seen, doesn't want mom and dad to see them in their sin, so this they hope that since they can't see you you can't see them right well here's here's the sense in which Mephibosheth is this one who, who truly is a shame. He has been shamed in the sense that he's crippled. He, he, he doesn't fit. He's an outcast in society. All through scripture, you see this concept of those who are shamed, those who are clean and unclean. Think back through the Levitical laws. The clean had presence and relationship with God and his people. The uncleaned were shamed and outcast and even set outside the camp. There had to be a certain way that they could get back in so shame can be helpful when it says we need a savior we need a God who loves us but shame can be drastically distorted whether through whether you are feeling shame over your own sins and you are struggling to feel the forgiveness of that or one of the hurtful hateful things that satan does is use the sins of others and perhaps you experience shame not because of your own wrong but because someone sinned against you in grievous ways that are it's unfortunately sad we even have to acknowledge that that exists in the world, and Satan would love to whisper into your ear, there's something wrong with you, and if people knew it, you should be shamed. And yet the gospel clears us of that the gospel says that jesus paid for those sins and gives us sonship status in the kingdom of god only through the righteousness of jesus christ can we be cleared of yes the judicial guilt of our sin but even the shame that our sin and the sins of others brings upon us and here's mephibosheth the man whose name means one who scatters shame and david uses his name and says you're going to be my son And God does the same thing for his children. I bring it up in this context, not because it's a simple truth to wrestle with. In fact, if you have been sinned against in those ways, it's a much deeper conversation. A a 90-second soundbite on a Sunday morning is not going to help you with this in terms of uh, some of the conversations you need to wrestle with. I bring it up to say, everything Satan is doing is wanting you to lurk deeper in the shadows and cover your shame and say, if people knew what was wrong, it wouldn't be okay. I bring it up to say, there's hope. The gospel gives hope. You need a trusted friend, a biblical, uh, someone who's biblically wise and can give you encouragement to say, uh, there's hope for you, just like there was hope for Mephibosheth. And it'll probably be a much deeper, longer conversation. But I want you to see that encouragement that here's someone whose name meant Shameful one, and David brings him into the family, and God will do the same for his children. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. So, what David does for Mephibosheth, we should do for others. Excuse me, sorry, I was recapping. What God does for us, God does for us what David did for Mephibosheth, and here's the second point what David does for Mephibosheth, we should do for others. What David does for Mephibosheth, we should do for others. In John chapter 13, those verses in your bulletin, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came onto the scene in the New Testament and he said, the way I've loved you is now how you're supposed to love one another. That Hesed love the steadfast love of God, the love that was shown to us through the person of Jesus Christ, is now the way that we're supposed to treat others in the church. It's a beautiful picture and it's a very high calling. I've used this definition of love. When we talk about loving in this way, how do we think about it? One man describes it this way, that it's a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that doesn't demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. This is what how David loved Mephibosheth. This is how God loves us. This is how Jesus loves us. It's a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that doesn't demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is is deserving this is the way that we're supposed to love one another and yet we struggle with this as a people I struggle with this as a person we, we need to, to think deeply about the grace that God has shown us and the way that David loved Mephibosheth is a good picture and example for us one commentator said it this way you and I are tempted to show kindness and to keep our covenant commitments only when it's convenient to do so or when it shows particular promise of return in the workplace in schools dare I say even in the church, we tend to keep covenant with those who will repay us in some way. Such calculated covenant faithfulness manifests our falseness more than our integrity. May we be people who who keep our covenant commitments even when it hurts, even when there's great personal risk. Think about this. It wasn't free for David to bring Mephibosheth into the community. He, he was taking away the inheritance of his sons, as biological sons, and giving them to Mephibosheth. Somebody had to pay. It, it wasn't free. There was great cost to it, even great risk to David. Uh, though, though Mephibosheth was lame, there was risk in bringing in a descendant of Saul, someone else who could theoretically have a line to the throne. You see some of it even played out in, in 2 Samuel chapter 16 and 2 Samuel chapter 19. We won't go there for sake of time. But you see some of this risk potentially realized. Remember when Absalom, one of David's sons, makes his uh, claim on the throne. And there's this threat of, of uh, overthrow for the throne. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, David has to flee Jerusalem and he's on the trail and he runs into Ziba. Remember Ziba, he's the household servant, the one who would have been there. David thinks, "There's Ziba, where's Mephibosheth? Why isn't Mephibosheth here?" And the story that Ziba gives is he he's still back at the kingdom because he his he said, "Now that David's gone, today's the day I get my grandfather's throne." David believes Ziba. And there appears to be a role reversal where David takes everything from Mephibosheth and gives it to Ziba. Three chapters later, which is only just a few days later, David shows back up in Jerusalem and there's Mephibosheth. And he hasn't taken care of himself. He hasn't washed his feet. He hasn't taken care of his hair. And he says, Mephibosheth, what gives? And Mephibosheth says, I was loyal in my love. Ziba's the one who turned on you. And the text like doesn't even sort it out to help us figure out which one was right there's a couple indications a couple clues but like we want to know who's right like who was wrong who was right and the text like david still seems to show love to mephibosheth um at great personal cost to himself, at great personal risk. He just says, I'll absorb this, I'll take it, I'll pay the cost because of my covenant love with Jonathan. And and so here's the deal, when we love this way, it hurts. Uh, Somebody has to pay, somebody has to absorb that cost, and wow, that's, that's not easy to do. There's a couple of scenarios where we see this played out then, as I said, both in our marriage covenants, in the vows with our spouses, and then in the covenants that we make with our church community. Think, think this way. As brothers and sisters in Christ, those who covenant to, to fulfill uh, what it means to be a Christian here at Shawnee Baptist Church, we, we have to love deeply even when it hurts, and our covenant is part of what holds us to that. I'm walking through that with the new members class uh, today especially and a little bit more next week of when we covenant. What does it mean? It doesn't just mean that we like the music here and we like the children's ministry and so we're willing to join and sign up. It's a promise to we're going to live out the Christian faith and help one another and encourage one another on to love and good works and and we have a church covenant. I don't know how old it is in the history of Shawnee but there's a document where it tries to spell it out. It doesn't take the place of scripture. It tries to put feet on here's how we're going to live out the New Testament commitments to one another and it's helpful for us to remind us that it's it's a covenant that holds us together not a convenience thing not not when the ministry somewhere else meet my needs better but it's a it's a covenant promise that we're bound together to love David Gunderson says it this way, covenants are made for the hard times, not the good times. In good times, we don't need covenants because we can get by and stick together on feelings alone. But covenant communities hold us up when we're faltering and pick us up when we've fallen. They encourage us when we're weary and wake us when we're slumbering. They draw us out of ourselves and call us to our commitments and responsibilities. They invite us back to the garden of Christian community where we grow This is what holds us together as a church, is our covenant commitments and relationships to one another. And we particularly need them when we didn't otherwise think we would. That's particularly the kind of time that that we need that steadfast, Hesed kind of love. And it should be true of our church relationships. Secondly, it should be true in our marriage relationships. Let me speak to those of you that are married in here this morning. When you got married, you stood before your spouse, and you took vows. You made a covenant. Uh, and, and, and those vows uh, are what help the marriage work. Now, in a world that's cursed by sin, we live out the experience of that, and we know that there are sad and broken stories that go along with marriage where, where those... Uh, uh, Where sin. we Wreaks its havoc and destroys relationships, and we understand that and acknowledge that. And there's room for grace uh, in, in front of Christ, even, even through some of those broken relationships. But let me speak to you in an ideal scenario, those of you that are married, how do we think about your marriage vows and your covenants? Remember that the day you stood before one another and there was this great feeling of love, at that point, you don't need vows and covenants, feelings alone will uh, uh, want you to enter this union. Um, And yet remember that the feeling of love isn't what helps you live out your covenant. Your covenant is helps you, what helps you live out the love. I read a, a great article this week where uh, the woman writing the article was reflecting on her own marriage, and she remembers the uh, minister at her wedding saying this, God has not given you your love to protect your vows, but he has given you your vows to protect your love. Um, brothers and sisters, those of us that are married, that's, that's what we need. At times, we have to come back to our covenantal vows and show Hessid love, faithful love, even when it's not deserved, even when it's not reciprocated. Um, otherwise, we get into this um, bartering, weaponizing of our love. I'll love you if... Um, and that's one of the quickest ways to begin to destroy uh, a marriage... If, if Let me say this as well, that your marriage vows, if you're in a marriage or a relationship where there's abuse or it's not safe, I'm not saying to you that your marriage vows don't speak to that. Scripture would give us a different way to handle a situation that isn't physically safe, and there's other avenues to go through that. What I'm speaking to is the normal, ordinary, run-of-the-mill conflict in marriage. Um, our vows are part of what call us back and say, Uh, I'm going to show covenantal love, steadfast love, love that isn't deserved because that's how God loved me. Um, that's the way that Christ sacrificed for me and and David and Mephibosheth is a beautiful picture of that. It helps us think about both our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. One commentator said it this way, I love this story of David and Mephibosheth because I continue to catch glimpses of it and hear echoes of it in stories in which I have a part. The gospel miracle is that human beings like us from time to time evade the temptations of power and brittleness of success and actually manage to vulnerably love another person who has all the potential of turning on us and rejecting us. Every time such love is ventured, another piece of the gospel is proclaimed and the kingdom of God is made credible. The beauty of the gospel is that this is what God did for us not because of anything we brought to the table, but because of his grace. Romans 5, 8 says that God shows his love or demonstrates his love to us and that even while we were were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were still God's enemy, Jesus Christ came to this earth and died for us to, to wipe away our guilt, to take our shame, to take our broken relationship and say, I will make you my own and to give us a seat at the king's table. To say, you are my son, you are my daughter. That's grace. That's something that we ought to celebrate as a people. Father, we love you. We are thankful for who you are. Why you would be willing to show this kind of steadfast love to us, we don't understand. And yet we're thankful for it. And we need to grow in this kind of love to one another. Father, I pray if there's some here this morning who don't know about that relationship with you, that they haven't yet taken care of salvation, that you would bring conviction, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ for salvation. Uh, For the marriages and church relationships in this room, Father, I just pray that you would help us to get better at showing love to one another the way that you have showed love to us. Do that for us. Do that for me, I pray. Please work on us, Father. We ask in Christ's name, amen.